Okay. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Not Just Politics podcast. The following is a conversation with Claire Ashcraft. She's a sophomore at Capital University in Columbus, Ohio. She is the president of the Bridge USA chapter at Capital, as well as a senator for the School of Humanities and the bridging and bias assistant for All Sides News. We sat down at the Bridge USA Summit to talk about religion, politics, ideology, and more. To support the show, check out the link for the Say What Needs Saying Network in the description and the links for social media. Enjoy. Can you talk a little bit about your journey that led you to being an atheist? And can oh. you make the argument for organized religion? Um, okay, that's an interesting way to start. Um, I don't really think I had like a journey to being an atheist. It was more just I happened to be raised in the Catholic Church and then people when you get into like late elementary and middle school start asking you what you believe and at a certain point in middle school my best friend like turned to me and very seriously was like do you believe in God and I was like well I've been told to but I didn't really think about it and I and then I was just like you know what none of this actually makes sense to me so in a way it's more of a death by a thousand cuts thing of like there's so many issues and questions and things that don't make sense. It's not just one thing, but it was also like none of it ever really made sense to begin with. So I was kind of like by default an atheist, even though I was raised and supposed to be taught a certain thing. Um, So that's just kind of where I'm coming from. And then the case for organized religion, I think religion is very powerful because it gives people a unified moral framework. And that's something where you can get a lot done. You see religious organizations doing a lot of good, especially when it comes to things like natural disasters. Like they're very quick to action and to motivate people because they're sharing um, this morality together. And that can be a really powerful way to move people. But if it's like a cult, it can also move people in a negative direction. But I think it can be used in a a really powerful, positive way as well. Um, So religion to me is kind of a neutral thing. Um, it just depends what angle you're coming at it from and what style of beliefs you take on. Like Christianity is so broad. You have Christians who are the worst people you'll ever meet. You have them who are the best people you'll ever meet. Um, it just really depends, I guess, in what manner, um, they decide to take their beliefs. And can you talk about a similar type of question, your political journey from where you started to where you're now? Because from what I understand, it was a bit of a change. Yeah, um, it's been a bit of a shift over time. So I didn't really engage in politics whatsoever until um, Trump was being elected. I was like 12, really showing my age there. Um, And people would talk about how bad Trump is. And at home, I was hearing like, oh, but Hillary's emails was a thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I just kind of repeated that sentiment because I trust my parents at that age. I think we all kind of parrot our beliefs that we hear at home. And people would bring up things that I didn't really know about. They'd be like, oh, but what about um, Trump's sexual assault scandals? And I was like, I don't really know that much about that. Um, So I think very quickly, my friends sort of changed my mind um, to being more liberal. And it wasn't really a matter of choosing like friends over family it was just more my friends were explaining to me why I was wrong my parents never really explained beliefs because they just casually it it was their belief and at that age they didn't feel like I was equipped to really know about it and I was probably right I wasn't really equipped to make those decisions but I wanted to um so here we are I'm leaning kind of liberal um and and then I start to lean 
pretty liberal as I, I go into high school and um, just with liberal people around me, you start to get on social media and see how a lot of influencers in our generation are really leaning that way as well. Um, and then I started to lean away from that. Um, and I think that was as I came into the bridging movement, especially um, because basically my dad is very conservative. I was very liberal. Um, we ended up clashing a lot, arguing a lot. Um, but it was more of like a fun thought exercise, not an issue of morality until summer of 2020 when all the riots were breaking out and you could go anywhere and you could not escape the discourse around police brutality and Black Lives Matter. It wasn't like we could argue about abortion and then have dinner and go about our lives anymore. It was like, it's everywhere. You can't open up your phone without seeing it. Um, so that was a time when I felt like the messages I was getting from the internet were like, okay, if your parents are racist, you need to correct them. And if your parents don't accept everything you say for who you are, then like you should cut them off. Or there's like the completely opposite perspective of you should just love people anyways because you're a family and not worry about politics at all. But I was passionate about politics. It really mattered to me. Um, so the only way I could really navigate through that um, was kind of bridging work. It was, okay, we have to talk about these issues and discuss them, but it's not the end all be all. And I didn't come to that answer um, very quickly. At the time, I was so distressed. I was like, my parents are saying things that I consider to be racist, but I know they're good people. I know that when there are construction workers outside, they want to go give them water, right? A, an evil person, from what I've been told, does not do that, right? I know my parents are good people. Um, particularly my dad was the one I was taking issue with. Um, so I was really having this conflict. People are telling me they're racist, they're not good people, but I know they're a good person. So like, what, what do I do? What is this? And like, you try and, I try and correct them gently. Like maybe they're just misinformed. Um, so let me like educate them is what I've been told. You just need to educate those people. Um, but like, that's not always the answer because when they're coming from a different perspective, I think it's very arrogant to just assume you're right and you can educate them. Like as much as we hate as young people being told, oh, you don't have the experience yet. It is true to a degree. They lived a lot of the world and that doesn't mean they're right. It doesn't mean we're right. It doesn't mean anyone's right. But you have to acknowledge that they're coming from a full, a more fully formed perspective of the world. Um, so I tried to educate him and I was expecting like a nice liberal pat on the back because there were like these viral videos of people yelling at their parents and telling them off for being racist. And adults in my life that I really respected were reposting those videos being like, oh, I bet she had good history teachers. And... <laughs> And so I was like kind of expecting like someone's going to pat me on the back for this, for doing the right thing, for being a good person. And like no one did. I just felt terrible because then I told them, oh, you hold this view that's racist. And then we had to sit down and act like everything's normal at dinner. Um, and that was really difficult for me. But that's part of the reason that I found bridging. And now I identify a lot more as a centrist. I differ from the views I was expressing then on Black Lives Matter. And... I grew to a centrist position because I was suddenly making a conscious effort to expose myself to the best arguments on the right, the best arguments on the left. Um, and I think you also, like, it's different when that's not coming from your parents. I think you just um, appreciate things more. So when I'm hearing people on the right, they're like, I don't know anything about, but actually that's something really reasonable. Actually, I never thought of that position before. Um, I think it really made a difference. And I think 
there are people on the right and left in bridging and we need that like we we do not want to be a bunch of squishy moderates um but I think a lot of people are mixed or independent or centrist by the very nature of just hearing the best of the best from the left and the right all the time. If you make a conscious effort to saturate yourself with the best ideas, you're going to find the reason there is a cultural war, the reason there is a left and a right is because these are ideas that are debated reasonably so, right? There is a good argument on either side. Otherwise, these issues would be settled. Um, so that's where I am now. Okay, Ben Shapiro, <clears throat> who's notoriously a huge fan of the show, <laughs> who's watching right now, he has is. a mantra that is, my facts don't care about your feelings. I think that we should make data-driven decisions, but where do emotions and feelings play into our politics? And should they be ignored or should they be embraced? Oh, I think they have to be embraced. I think they play in, in a huge way because what we find out through data, ironically, is that facts actually don't change people's opinions because you can get facts from anywhere and people will disagree with where you got that fact. That's a biased source. Or um, even if they agree, if it, even if it's Pew Research, right, notoriously reliable, pretty centrist, um, people will be like, oh, but it's phrased in this way, which they weren't giving people the full context, right? Um, or things like that. Like they'll ask a question about student loan debt forgiveness. Do you support it or against it? And people on the right will say, yeah, but they didn't ask about raising taxes, which would be a result of that policy, right? So I think there's so many ways that data can be misused or twisted and all these things and no one trusts it anymore. We do need to have some trust in our institutions, some trust in data, because personal experience isn't everything. It, it simply isn't representative of what the whole world goes through, right? My, I've even learned this weekend talking to everyone, my experience in Ohio, very different from New York City or California or Texas. Well, you don't say. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> it's like, obviously, we do need data, but ultimately, it doesn't change minds. Um, building relationships changes mind. Having conversations where you really relate and try and understand the person, that's what's going to change someone's mind. So yeah, in a sense, legitimate facts that are well-based do not care about your feelings, but I promise you, your feelings care about where those facts are coming from and your mind is automatically going to go into attack mode defensiveness mode if someone gives you a statistics that disagrees with what you have and if you're really smart we find that the smarter you are the better you're able to justify false beliefs to yourself right like mathematicians um will get an answer to a question wrong if it disagrees with their deeply held beliefs and that's, that's just how we're wired, unfortunately. Like, some of us, I wish we were Spock and could just be like, oh, look at the data. This is an obvious good policy decision. Um, but the reality is that we, we need people, we need relationships, we need feelings involved. Um, so we're going to have to embrace them to be able to come together and make decisions. It's like what Noah Fenton posted. It's the facts don't change minds, friendships do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So you consider yourself in the center... Do you ever feel the comfort, for lack of a better word, of ideology pulling at you? Um, yeah. I mean, I definitely still have biases. Like when I read something with certain words, I have an immediate reaction, regardless of whether what they're saying is accurate or not. Um, and it comes from both directions. Sometimes I'll read something and I'll feel that like old, like liberal tug voice in the back of my head that's like, automatically reacting poorly to this right-wing message but then I can do the same thing if I'm reading about for example like diversity equity and inclusion 
um, or things like that, I have like an immediate kind of visceral, almost disgust reaction to like the those words anymore, which is not something that I like or feel comfortable in because someone could be making a really good argument and just be using those terms in a different way and in a different context. So I try when that happens to like take a step back and be like, okay, why am I feeling that way? And a lot of times continue reading like, okay, I can acknowledge that I have this disgusting feeling towards this person using this word, but let me hear them out and try and steal me on their position. And also understand sometimes um, I can acknowledge like, oh, that's something I would have said two years ago. That's like a phrase that I would have used that now I'm like, ooh, that's just, that's not accurate at all. But being like, they might be accurate. Like, I feel like everyone has something to teach you, um, even if it's just you learn something about yourself from talking to them. Um, so I try and come at it with an open mind and be like, yes, there are ideologies on both sides that's comfortable, that are influencing me. Um, and that's there, that exists, can't control it. But what I can do is try and step back and be like, okay, I'm having a reaction to this. Where is this coming from? And is it kind of valid? Should I keep reading this piece? Is there still something to learn here? What's the value in surrounding yourself with people you disagree with? Uh, I think there's so much value just in like sharpening your own ideas. Iron sharpens iron, right? You might change your mind, but that's not always the goal. The goal of bridge building work is not always at the end of the day, you turn from a radical communist to like someone in the center or someone that leans right. Um, the goal is not to change anyone's mind. I think the goal is sometimes to change your mind if you're wrong, but sometimes to sharpen your own beliefs in contrast to other people because people who disagree with you will bring up things that you just hadn't considered by virtue of your experiences and your perspective. Like, I'm not very well-versed in economics. If someone brings up an economic issue to me, or like if we're talking about abortion and they start bringing up how economics is related to that, I might be like, I never thought of that because I do, I'm not an economically-minded person. Mm -hmm. um, so I think people that disagree, they disagree because they have different experiences and different perspective, and that different perspective can be extremely valuable in figuring out whether you're right or not. And you do have a bias towards thinking that you're already right, um, so, you know, first of all, realize that and try and temper that, like maybe they're right. But if you want to continue believing in what you say you believe, then having those different viewpoints and those different perspectives and those different objections brought to you is only going to make your ideas stronger. On the topic of people's personal experiences, what is the last shared experiences Americans have had where we have been unilaterally on one side of an issue? And do you think we can ever have that again? Mm. I mean, the last experience we shared together was COVID. And I think a lot of people thought that that was going to be a unilateral unifying moment, um, like 9-11 is what I would argue is the mm. next one before that. And I think people thought there's a united, we're united against an enemy, right? It's a virus and unseen enemy, we're going to conquer this together. And then that too became completely polarized with the vaccines, with the mask mandates. Um, so we had like a moment of unity there in COVID for like two weeks, two weeks to flatten the curve, guys. We did it. Um, <laughs> two years. Um, so I, I think um, being unified against an enemy might, it could happen again. I mean, we see, I think, people across the political spectrum like don't like China right now. And so if we went 
not an actual war, but like a cold war or something. Like I could see, uh, we're also mostly united against Russia right now. Like there are some fringe people um, that like Russia. So I guess it also depends what, what percent of America is like entirely united. Like, is that 90%? Is that 80% of people? That's a great question. Yeah. Because we're not all hundred percent ever going to agree on anything. I don't think, but I think we're kind of united against Russia right now. Um, so it does help to have an enemy together that's like outside of the U.S., whether it be a virus or a country. Um, like with 9-11, we're all united because there's an enemy there and it's terrorism. But then we see all the negative effects of like the war on terror. So as much as I want us to all be united again and I want polarization to go away and it would be great, I think we can also make poor and wrong decisions when there's a lack of disagreement in the room, right? Because like I said, iron sharpens iron. When we're arguing with each other, we come out with the best idea. So when we're all in agreement that like, hey, X thing is bad, that's great. But what we do about X thing might not be the best decision if we don't have anyone arguing for the other side. So yesterday at the summit, we had a discussion about uh, uh, if America was or was not the greatest country in the world. Can you give me your opinion on this? Okay, I, I was like mentally writing my speech as we were listening to people, so I get the opportunity to say it now. Um, so I think um, everyone is basically in agreement um, for everyone that wasn't there. A lot of people were arguing, America is great. We have great ideals and great potential if we live up to those, but we have a lot of problems. We have problems in education, in healthcare, in our prison system. So there are a lot of, lot of problems we need to address, um, but that free speech, the fact that we have criticism, these are all great things about our country. Um, So I agree with everyone who spoke and said that. But I think the question, is America the greatest? Um, The onus there is on greatest. And I think if you're going to claim that we are the greatest, then like the burden of proof is on you. To say America is not the greatest country, you don't necessarily have to offer an alternative to what is the greatest. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're making the affirmative claim that we are the greatest then you have a very high burden of proof because there are like, what is it, 270 countries or something, like 272 or something. Um, and I'm willing to bet that like none of us in that room have been to even half the countries in the world or a quarter or even five, right? Yeah, most I of us... Been to five. I haven't been to four. Yeah, most of us have not even been to five countries. So it would be very hard to have extensive knowledge about all the countries in the world to conclusively say that America's the greatest... And so I think that we are not necessarily equipped to answer that question. And in a way, it's, I think it's very American. I have a love-hate relationship with us like trying to answer that question. I love the sense of inquiry and the, and the want to learn and figure out whether we are the greatest, what values we hold, whether we're living up to those values. These are all very important questions. Um, but I also think it has a sense of like American arrogance that we can mm-hmm. even think we can answer that. Like to think that someone who's left America, maybe some of them have never left America, maybe some have left three times, right? And lived abroad for like six months. Um, so like there's an, a certain arrogance saying, oh yeah, I've been out this, outside of this country three times. And I think I can conclusively say, yeah, we're the best. Like it's just such a um, impossible question to answer without doing like investing years maybe centuries worth of research I think so I mean I I want to emphasize that 
I agree that we have great values, great principles. And I want to lean towards the side of saying like, we're the greatest, but like, I don't know that. And I would never claim to know that because I don't know anything about most other countries and most Americans don't. Um, so that's where I, I kind of fall like, eh, I don't think it's, it's anything we're going to get an answer to today or, or maybe ever. Um, but I think a lot of people were saying, oh, why does there have to be greatest nation? And I mean, I think there, there are better and worse countries. There are better and worse cultures. Like there are certain things we don't tolerate. We don't tolerate genocide. A country like China that's committing genocide, we're not going to call them the greatest country over us. So I think it's valid that there is a sense of hierarchy. I just think it's hard to discover what that hierarchy is um, without a lot of investment. Do you think that we, do you think that American arrogance that is involved in the, that discussion is something that we need? Because I feel like we're lacking it right now. Ooh, that's an interesting question. I, mm, it's needed for at least, I think, some of the country to have it. Like, I think a national pride is good. Um, and I think we definitely need people that are patriotic and do think we're the greatest, as well as we need people who are dissenting. And you're right, like that tide of people that are dissenting and saying America is not the greatest, I think is louder at this point in time and a bigger group. Um, so I think we do need a balance. It's just like how we need a balance of people who are progressive and conservative because we need people that want to push things forward and like burn institutions down. But we also very much need people saying, no, what we have is working. If we burn it down, we put everyone in danger of having nothing, right? And, and so it's very similar in saying America's the greatest and America's the absolute worst country to ever exist. Like, you need people that are pushing to make the country better and highlighting what we're doing horribly. And we also need people that highlight what we have right and say, hey, we need to preserve some of this. We shouldn't just burn it all down because so far, I think we've been doing pretty damn good. I think I think Joey Diaz might have enough of that American arrogance <laughs> for the rest of us to take a look. Maybe he's just the one keeping it up right now. <laughs> like, I don't know who that is. But <laughs> no, I, was, okay. I sent you the clips on Instagram where he's like, we're the baddest motherfuckers out there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. guy. Yeah. He has enough of it for everybody. He does. He can I'm share gonna, some around. I'm going to tell my kids that was George Washington because <laughs> they're not going to know. Okay. So, so what does it mean to be an American to you? Mm. I think being an American is embracing these um, kind of classical liberal principles that we have of, you know, we can critique our government. We have freedom to protest, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Um, so kind of embracing those type of things, because a lot of other countries are built on nationality or religion, and they have a lot more unity in that sense. But America was really built on ideas. We talk about that a lot, like we're a nation of immigrants. We don't necessarily have a very unified um, culture or a unified ethnicity. Everyone's coming from everywhere. Everyone has different perspectives. So what is the one thing that we can all agree upon that glues us together as a nation? And ultimately, it's a lot of the things that are in our constitution. And I know some people think the constitution needs to be revised or gotten rid of entirely. Um, but the reason they can say that is the freedom of speech, freedom to position the government, in the Constitution. So I think ultimately, um, a lot, if not the Constitution itself, a lot of the elements in it is what we're agreeing to when we decide to become Americans. Yeah, I, I think that um, 
it, it's interesting because we're just like like people talked about last night. We're just a bunch of people. There's not really one yeah. thing that everyone's going to have in common. <clears throat> and I, I think that it's possible that whenever we don't have those shared experiences anymore, it feels like we're farther apart than we might actually be. Because whenever we don't have a common enemy to unite behind, then we start focusing on what makes us different from the people that are around us. And then that creates, not division, but it creates people to just become more tribal, maybe. Yeah, I agree. I, I find a lot of times that uh, ideologues use kind of like buzzwords to reinforce limited thinking. So how does that, I hear a lot of people talk about open-mindedness and empathy, and I'm really of the belief that people are only open-minded and empathetic until you disagree with me. And then I shut that shit right off <laughs> and we're back to me just being bitter and angry yeah. at you because you don't feel how I feel about guns or about abortion. So how are those words used to manipulate public sentiment from yeah. thought leaders? Yeah. Um, I don't think it's intentional. Like a lot of people are like, oh, these mass media companies and, um, Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson. And let me think of someone on the right, Hassan Piker or something are like manipulating everyone and using this, um, in-group language that's like unifying their base. And I don't think it's an intention. Well, um, search engine optimization is kind of intentional. Like you do have to do certain things to get noticed on social media, Mm -hmm. but I don't think people are like oh, I'm going to control these people. I'm going to use this type of language. I think it's what people get used to. When you surround yourself with people who think like you because you do shut things down that you're like, well, I just think it's immoral to have this view on guns or abortion or climate change. And you're like, so I'm going to shut out this small group. But eventually that group grows a little larger and larger without realizing it sometimes because people that have that belief also have a lot of beliefs that come with it. So like if you say... I, anyone who's pro-life can't talk to them. Well, that's a lot of the right. Suddenly you very much limited um, your friend group and all these other ideas without realizing it. And that's when you can kind of get really used to adjusting to this language. Um, Even like when I was in high school and I was more liberal, like the word intersectionality or privilege or something, like that was just normal to me. That didn't set off any alarm bells in my head. It was like, yeah, these are the words we use. You ask someone what their pronouns are. And now I'm like, oh, if someone says the word intersectionality, that gives me a vibe. That yeah. ge- that makes me pick up on your political um, thing. And part of that is because I work in bias now. So I'm, I'm trained. Okay. I'm sorry. What were we talking about before we had to? Um, so I was saying um, I'm very attentive to like bias now because that's um, what I work in. So I notice how a lot of these words are coded. Um, to be kind of on the right or on the left. Um, But I think when you're entrenched in the right or the left, you don't really um, notice it as much because it's how everyone else is communicating with you. Um, So I think those buzzwords just kind of exist from people talking to one another who are very deep into the same mind space, which isn't always a bad thing. Like you don't want to only be in your echo chamber, of course, but if you believe certain things, you do need someone who agrees with you to kind of go deeper into that. Like, right. how does this play out? Why do we believe that? And what are the consequences of believing that? Not just like arguing all the time about whether this belief is right. Um, I think you can go deeper with that when you get in with people you agree with. 
but obviously you also need to talk to people you disagree with and that loaded language and buzzwords um, can cause a lot of problems in that sense and and that's where I just recommend if you're making a serious genuine effort to like communicate with people on the other side um, you just need to find language you can both agree upon and like clearly define what you mean by those terms that's a big thing with buzzword terms is people don't even know what they mean anymore people throw them around and they're like yeah intersectionality like everyone means something different by that racist has no meaning anymore to me yeah i hear somebody is racist it's like okay, yeah what, what did they do did they actually do something racist or did they just say something that it, like yeah. i will see a white professor call a white student racist and i'm like okay did they say something that was genuinely racist, right or is it just everyone walking on eggshells like trying to preserve their sense of right you know, morally better than everyone else and it gets so complicated, like with terms with like anti-Semitism. It's like, did they pull a Kanye and genuinely say Hitler was okay? Or did they like criticize the Israeli government? Those are two very different scales right. of things. And I think that sense of scale has been lost as these words have been saturated mm -hmm. so much. And then they're never defined. Like, I, I think that you should be able to criticize governments. No right. matter who is running it. But yeah. if you do what Kanye did, that's obviously... But then that's sort of clearly defined. But even then some people like we were in that group today for our advanced moderation workshop. And one person said, well, what do I do if what do I what do I do if group A is labeled group B anti-Semitic and now group B can't say anything because it's always going to get labeled anti-Semitic. Yeah, like that one's even then a little bit blurry. But then there are some like, again, when racist gets thrown around. Yeah. This doesn't mean anything to me more. It's been overused. Yeah. I think the solution is just to talk about ideas and individual people, right? Don't generalize groups because all of these groups of people are individuals with their own ideas and experiences. And if you treat people as individual people with their own ideas and experiences, then that solves a heck of a lot of discrimination. Right. So what are the, um, what are the, the benefits, like what are the pros or cons of, because you talked about if you decide to label XYZ idea in your head as bad and box it out, then yeah. you've boxed out a lot of people because those ideas are sort of adjacent to each other. Yeah. And I think that sort of falls along the lines of censorship as well. So can we talk about the pros and cons of that idea? The pros and cons of censorship? Yeah, and of the whole, like, you know, yeah. I'm going to exclude someone with XYZ view because it's not helpful for me to hold that in my brain or it's not beneficial to me. But then as a yeah. result, that might exclude other groups of people yeah this is like a huge conversation in like the bridging community because a lot of people that lean left are like i don't don't ask me to tolerate someone i think is discriminating against me therefore i should censor them that came up in the dinner last night yeah and my answer to this is always emphasis on personal boundaries so for other people i'm not going to ask someone who's black to talk to a kkk member that's unreasonable for me to expect of them right. so they need to say no i don't want to do that but if someone wants to be daryl davis I was <laughs> who has talked davis. to all the kkk members then like that's his prerogative right. and he's doing great work like i think he's amazing and a lot of other people do as well um i think anyone would argue he does great work you know de-radicalizing those members and having them hang up their hoods so like that's a great thing but it's also not a reasonable expectation for everyone um, so I think everyone has to set their own boundaries. Um, but for me, that Overton window, like my line of what's too far is like way out there. Like I will talk to anyone. Um, like at, people are as like 
people always bring up the example of Nazis. They're like, oh, you want to bring the two sides together? What about Nazis? Um, and for me, like, I would genuinely talk to someone like that because oh, that's, to me, the ultimate test of if I can be compassionate, if I can keep my cool, if I can um, do it in a productive way where I'm not, like, offering them a platform, but at the same time... I'm understanding them and treating them as a human being so that they won't become more radical. Like that is like gold star, like exactly what I would want to do. It'd be so yeah. challenging. Well, I talked, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get canceled. <laughs> I don't want to be a Nazi. Okay. I could have brushed over. Okay. That. I mean, I mean that I would like to talk to them. Very clear on that. <laughs> But okay. Okay. No. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. Okay. No one cut. No one make that a soundbite. <laughs> That's staying. That's staying in. I think it's also. Also, I think if you can get those people to change their minds, that's also a serious testament to the fact that these ideas right. work. Yeah, I think the the problem for me. I actually argued this at last year's summit. They said, "Should dangerous ideas? I don't really should dangerous ideas be tolerated?" I think. And I argued that they absolutely should because when you shut those people down, those ideas do not go away. They go underground, right? And then you can't see them. You don't know where they are. And they're becoming more radical because people, if they don't feel accepted by you, then they're going to go to a more extreme group. And that's where things become violent and dangerous. So we have to get the, like, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I know some people disagree with that when they're like, it's really hateful. I don't want to see that. And I'm like, great, control your own social media so that you don't see it. But the state, the companies, those ideas need to be out in the open so people that are willing to do the work, like Daryl Davis, I, I don't want to compare me and you to him. I was going to say like me and you and Daryl Davis, um, but we're not in that group, okay? We're not that good. No. But not like people that are willing to combat those ideas, they should be able to do so because that's what's going to keep them in check. And that's going to let us know actually how widespread um, these beliefs that we feel are dangerous are rather than just letting them kind of fester in the dark and being like, I don't know how many people are like genuinely dangerous racists or dangerous anti-Semites, right? We, we want to know who those people are. So I think transparency is always the side that I lean towards, but I don't expect everyone else to like personally do it. I understand people need to have boundaries, but in a public sense, like I, I think almost nothing should be censored. Right. Well, that's that, that quote needs to go on. Whenever you write your book, <laughs> that quote needs to go in there because I love that quote. Okay, so you work for all sides. You are you are the friend that works at all sides. That I I, I am the infamous. This is inf the infamous my friend that works at all sides. Yes, your identity has now been exposed. <laughs> Do I need witness protection? <laughs> you might you might? I mean, you you know all the people that watch the show. I mean, the Paul brothers, Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro, yeah, great uh, friends. Band nineteen seventy five apparently, um, just. Yeah. Every there's so many people that watch our show. Yeah, the Paul yeah. brothers are Ohioans, so you they know. Are Ohio? Yeah, this is very true. So, ah, where's that? It's all right. Shout out Jeremiah. Cut. This is his book that he wrote. Oh my goodness, I'm so impressed by him. I wish yeah. I had a book written. Actually, no. If I had a book written, I would want to revise it in like a year and six months. He so. did. He did. This is the newest version that wow. got edited and got trimmed up yeah 
I'm impressed that by him. Coming, that episode will be out before this one. So. You have to like send me photos. So either either I'll get one from him or like also, I'll have to pirate this <laughs> from you. Take this one because he has 20 copies. At his really? Album. I'll just get one from when we go back to Pittsburgh. Oh, cool. <clears throat> okay. Can just have that. Yeah. Actually, and he signed it as well. So <gasps> when he becomes when he when he gets famous. so famous that he's on Joe Rogan. You can say that you have a signed copy of his book. Yeah, no, you can have that one because I and I'll have to talk to him today about getting another copy. Uh, it's very impressive. Yeah. And, like, there's all the citations like in the back. Like, it's just like, wow. Full, yeah, it's it's crazy. It's so impressive. The guy's like, I wrote a book, and I was like, We know cool book. people. We know very cool people. <laughs> okay. So anyway, so you're. You've been exposed as the friend that works at all sides. Do you know how they manage? Because they have a media bias, like, uh, gauge type thing. How do they calibrate that? Yeah. So we have a media bias chart. Um, it's been retweeted by Elon Musk. And Lex Friedman tweeted it. I just got to plug that. Elon uh, yeah. Musk loves us. Well, they're both huge fans of the show. So Yeah. Yeah. Lex would already know. He's going to have me on. Um, <laughs> I hope. One day. Um so uh, we use a lot of different methods to calculate that. Um, the main one is we do editorial reviews. So our multi-partisan panel of bias experts will look at a source for like an hour. We'll go through their homepage. We'll see what they posted, you know, in the last six months and read through it and say what type of language are they using? What type of bias comes out? Um, and then we'll assign them on a scale. Um so it goes from, I believe, positive nine to negative nine, um, negative being on the left and then positive. Um, so we'll assign them a number and then we'll average first the people. We usually have two people on the left, two people on the right and two people in the center. Um, so we'll average all of our scores that we gave the outlet um, and average them all together and, and give them a score that way for an editorial review. We also do blind bias surveys. So that's where people can go to our website and um, there's no name of that outlet on there, but we'll be like, okay, we're doing whatever outlets, we're doing these six outlets, and we'll remove the name, but we'll mm -hmm. just have, here are um, three headlines that they had on this day, um, and then we'll do like the first 150 words of like a story and say, what bias do you think this unnamed outlet has? Mm -hmm. um, so we do it that way as well, and then we get a bunch of information from, again, our customers on the left, center, and right, um, on what they think the bias of this outlet is without knowing what the outlet name is. Um, so there's no like preconceived notions. They're just genuinely guessing um, based on the language that's used and the type of headline and that kind of thing. So we have blind bias surveys. We have editorial reviews. We do have community feedback um, that doesn't directly like change our ratings. But if a lot of people disagree with our rating, then we'll be like, okay, maybe we should do a blind bias survey on that next. And then we also take into account independent research. So when universities like do research into certain outlets, we'll include that. Um, so there's like a wide multitude, an array of ways that we determine how something is biased. We also have we have small group editorial views and regular editorial views. So sometimes we'll do small group. If someone says, you know, I think we should really move this outlet, um, then sometimes we'll just have someone on the left, center, and right like look at it really quick and be like has this moved further in one direction or another um so we we really take a lot into account when creating this bias ratings it's not just like one person being like yeah this is on the left right. like yeah um there's there's a lot of ways that help us determine it and further determine if if we're right through our customers and like people 
that are just out there in the world how they perceive the outlet, not just the people within the company. Mm -hmm. And what was the what was your favorite thing that you got from that convention that you went to for them? Um, <clears throat> so we just did our first like all hands in person where we all met in person, and um, let me see. I honestly, I think my favorite thing. Um, was doing brainstorming just because we all had these crazy good ideas of like where, what we should get into next. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that was the most fun for everyone to finally just like let loose all these things they've been thinking about and wanting to do for years. And they're like, I think we should really get into this. And it opens up like these whole can of worms that I, I just love when you're with the most like innovative people that you think are the coolest and the ideas that we come together and make, I think are so, so great. Yeah. What was one small act of kindness you were once shown that you'll never forget? Um, first thing that comes to mind is there was a day last semester um, that I was really stressed. And then I was in the library printing something and I left my keys in the library and I didn't even realize until I was halfway through the day. And I was getting up from my class and I was like, shoot, where are my keys? And I had another class in 15 minutes. So I like, ran back to the library and couldn't find them anywhere. And someone had turned them in at the front desk, thankfully. And like, it wouldn't have been a big deal if it was just my room key because I can get another. Um, but it had like my car key, which obviously oh. has the make of your car on it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, someone could have just gone to the university parking lot and like press the panic button and stole my car or something. Mm -hmm. um, so like, I have no idea who this random stranger was that turned it in the front desk, but I'm very grateful for them um, that they did that. It's obviously just a nice thing to do, but um, I really like saved my day right there. Yeah, they didn't have to do that. Yeah. Okay, what advice do you have for young people? Oh boy. Um, I think one of them is just like, I always try and take life too fast and like try, try to enjoy where you're at in the present moment. Like you're only, and, and I know that's easier said than done, but like once you're out of a certain period in your life, once you're like out of high school, you're always going to look back at that time. And if you don't have a lot of memory of it because you were just doing so much and everything was a blur, then like that's not great. You, you want to have some great memories to look back on. So don't just always be what's my future career? What's this future thing? What's the next step to get me there? That's very important. But at the same time, leave some time to just enjoy where you're at, you know, go to that mm -hmm. party like. I, I think that that's um, one of the things that I struggle with. And I think that young people should, you know, be able to strike a balance between having purpose and, you know, trying to understand themselves, but also being like that purpose doesn't have to have the ha come at the cost of like enjoying your day to day. You need to have a balance of enjoying your day to day and feeling like feeling good about what you're doing in the long term. So, so the advice is slow down coming from the people that took the one that hour break at the summit to go record a podcast before we go do more summit stuff before we then go do 10,000 other things. I, I didn't say I was good at it. I said I was working <laughs> this on is it. True. This is true. It was so funny today. The, the Bridge USA CEO is walking around the tables. He's the coolest person. He's the coolest. He's so <clears> nice. He was just walking around the tables and um, oh, I forget how it came up in conversation, but he he basically called us out for just chronically overcommitting. He's like yeah. directly called us out, and I was like, "Wow, this is." So he said, funny. "I don't know why people in our generation think you have to be doing three hundred things to like be <laughs> that's successful." That's what he said. And I was like, "Shut up! I'm doing three hundred things for you, okay? <laughs> like I'm doing three hundred bridging <laughs> things. You should be proud of me. Do he I is proud of me? He he said I'm a hard worker, but like he did. I also." He did. 
work far too much and he did he did call us out he immediately i immediately looked over you and i was like he called us out in the middle of breakfast yeah <laughs> yeah for doing too much yeah okay what gives you hope for the future um people like the people i'm meeting here mm-hmm. like just i just feel like i have so much opportunity i'm so grateful to like be surrounded by the coolest people mm-hmm. at all sides at bridge like Everyone is interesting. I've not met someone at Inbridge that I did not like and did yeah, not want to become friends with. Like, mm-hmm. so I think just surrounding yourself with people that you really admire and look up to and you just think are the coolest people, like that gives me so much hope because I'm like, these people, they're doing something and I can see that they're doing something. Mm-hmm. It's not just, oh, we all want to sit around and discuss and sing Kumbaya. It's like, I, you know, at, like even at the debate last night, like, people actually change their minds and even Mm -hmm. though that's not always the goal it's like you can see the difference that -hmm. these people are making in other people's lives and that's what gives me a lot of hope yeah last night jeremiah said he he, what gives him hope is that he said whenever i see a group of people in a room that are giving 110 percent of what they have every single day it's really hard to bet against that and that's what i feel like this whole thing is for me it's like i see all of these people none of them have to be here like, none of the students that came from these, like, none of us had to come here, but we all did. Yeah. And that's something, like, as much as I said, I just said, slow down. I try to push myself. Like, that's something I really have been doing since I started college last year and this year is, like, forcing myself to do things that make me uncomfortable, which mm-hmm. for some reason over the last few months has involved flying across the country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, like, that's terrifying. Flying across the country alone when you don't travel alone is scary, but I did it because I knew in the end I would enjoy it. I would get mm-hmm. something out of it. Yes, it would also make a good story. Yeah. Like, and and I did. And I, I love it here. I, I loved it at the um, All Sides event in San Francisco. Like, it's it's been a really meaningful time. And so I think it's balancing risk-taking with what is going to be meaningful and purposeful and rejuvenate you and give you hope. Like, mm-hmm. that's what it's about. Well, I think we got to get out of here. We have we now have 20 minutes of the one-hour break remaining <laughs> before we have to go bridge the gap. So thank you for sitting down with us. Um, you're, you've now officially been on the show because your first episode never aired because I was in the Echoey Point Park Library. <laughs> but this was a lot of fun. And we'll probably see you next time at the Brave Angels Summit in yeah. Gettysburg. That'll probably be the next time, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, so thank you. Bye, everybody.